Welcome to Not Work Storytelling. This is the show where we untangle our myths and reweave our stories, one ancient tale at a time. I'm your host and lead storyteller, Marisa Gowdy. I'm a myth worker, a story healer, a coach for writers and creative entrepreneurs, and the author of The Sovereignty Knot, A Woman's Way to Freedom, Power, Love, and Magic. If you love what you hear and want to support the show, I'd be so grateful if you become a paid subscriber on Substack. In my newsletter, Myth is Medicine, you'll receive bonus content related to the stories on the show and deep dives into how mythology and folklore can help the individual and the collective in the present moment and beyond. There's a link in the show notes to follow Myth is Medicine on Substack, or you can simply visit mythismedicine.substack.com. Season 4, Episode 11, My Life as a Prayer with Elizabeth Cunningham. Our guest, Elizabeth Cunningham, is a novelist, poet, musician, and counselor based in New York's Hudson Valley. She'll be reading to us from her brand new multi-faith memoir, My Life as a Prayer. She is the author and illustrator of The Book of Madge, a graphic novel, which is the source of her best-known work, The Four Books in the Maeve Chronicles. Her earlier novels include The Wild Mother, The Return of the Goddess, and How to Spin Gold, all of which have recently been reprinted by Monkfish Publishing. Before we explore this week's story, I have a question for you. What about your stories? Whether it's a book project that wants to be birthed, deep, authentic writing to support your business, or a personal creative project you can't quite name yet, I am here as your story healer and writing coach who can walk beside you throughout your process and help you get the words onto the page and into the world. I work with folks who are writing memoirs, chronicles of the spiritual journey, and books that explore healing and the imagination, even as they reckon with the toughest truths of life. I support entrepreneurs, especially coaches and therapists in private practice, who wish to weave their personal experiences with their professional knowledge and wisdom. Do you want to build a writing practice and develop the ideas you know you must share? I invite you to visit my website, marisagowdy.com, to learn more about my writing coaching services and to set up a free 30-minute consultation. As one year ends and a new one begins, I wish you time for deep, nourishing reads and the space to do the writing that only you can do. I am so excited to welcome Elizabeth Cunningham back to the show for the second time. Elizabeth is going to share with us a little bit from her newest memoir, My Life as a Prayer. As is our way at Not Work Storytelling, we first ask the story to speak for itself, and then we'll explore all of its resonances and beauty. So Elizabeth, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Will you tell us a story? Thank you, Marisa. Yes, I will. This is a section of the book called Fairy God Lover. If I had taken that creative writing class, would I have learned how to write the sort of short story the New Yorker might publish? Would I have made connections that would have helped me find success in the literary world? I still wonder sometimes, and I'm also filled with wonder at how rejection from this course set me on my own course. Having gone to summer school, I didn't need to take a fourth course for credit in order to graduate. 
So I took only three courses and asked the section person of my American literature class if he would mentor me as a writer. He agreed. I began to write frantically to prove that I could. Pages and pages about people who might have lived in the Somerville neighborhoods I walked. People about whose lives I knew nothing. Maybe my father was right. Reality was grim, and I didn't know a thing about it. Note. I am not a proponent of the write-what-you-know school in any strict sense. I have written, convincingly, I hope, about first-century brothels and battles. It's different to write about things you haven't lived in your own era. I had no illusions that these attempted stories were going anywhere. I had no idea how to plot them or inhabit them. And yet, I showed them to my mentor anyway. It is significant that I trusted him enough, maybe trusted myself enough, to let him see my failures. I can still picture his face as he sat across from me in some Harvard Square cafe. How to describe the look of someone who's about to tell you the truth, who is about to change your life. I don't remember what he said about the stories I'd attempted. Did he just shake his head? Somehow he indicated that the writing I'd shown him wasn't worth critiquing. Then he spoke the words that opened the way to the rest of my life. You need to think about fairy tales. There are only five or six plots in the world. He gave me a copy of Peter S. Spiegel's novel, The Last Unicorn, and sent me on my way. I went home and spent the weekend alone, reading the novel and thinking. More than thinking, I was discovering, rediscovering, my own imaginative terrain. On my bookshelf were the Chronicles of Narnia. On my wall hung a child's map of make-believe that I'd picked up at a yard sale. I have it still and continue to ponder it with its compass depicting west of the sun, east of the moon, seas where mermaids sing and strange fishes live, impossible pinnacles topped with shacks or castles, cows jumping over the moon, bright-eyed bears lurking in the woods. I bought a heather plant in bloom. I remember gazing at it until it was a huge forest. I remembered all the tricks and gifts of imagination. And I pondered fairy tales, the five or six plots of the world. I still do. Whenever I lose my way in a story, questing, risking, danger, seeing through deceptive appearances, stopping to perform acts of kindness for animals and beggars, lost children, lost mothers, lost worlds, forgetting, remembering, sacrifice and redemption, death and resurrection. Enough to ponder for a lifetime. Monday morning, on my way to school, walking down Laurel Street to Somerville Avenue, a story arrived. 
children who had lost their mother, and even more disturbingly, did not know who or where she was. Their frightening father had kept her a secret. I will never forget that moment. The story so vivid in my imagination, as well as a heightened awareness of my surroundings. Even broken glass in the gutters and wind-blown trash remain in my memory. By the time I got to school, the six main characters had assembled. The human characters. And one who was other than, more than human. Lilith, the wild mother. Thank you to C.S. Lewis for the intriguing mention of the one he called Mother of Demons and Jinns, of all that looks human but is not. Thank you to Judith Plaskow for retelling the myth of the Garden of Eden with a twist, the alliance of Lilith and Eve. Thank you to Nana, my feisty grandmother who became Iona and Fred's grandma. Thank you to all the influences and elements known and unknown that gave me the wild mother. Thank you to my fairy god lover, for so he was. I am so grateful to hold space for this story of Elizabeth's writing journey. Before we dive into a conversation about her life as a writer and her life as a prayer, I wanted to let you know how I will be supporting writers in the year to come. The Writer's Knot is an online group for creative beings seeking community, inspiration, and that not-so-glamorous but oh-so-necessary thing, accountability. We'll meet three Wednesdays each month, beginning in January, with additional opportunities for writers' salons and connection. I've been running an online creative community since 2018. The name and the focus of the group has shifted a bit over time, but there's always a thread weaving these offerings together. It's about unifying the practical and the magical, and following both the straight lines and the spirals of creativity. It's about being inspired by a circle of like-minded, like-hearted creatives who know they have something to say, even in the midst of all the distraction and conflict happening in this world. In the new year, I'm excited to bring us back to basics and hold space for you to really get the writing done. The Writer's Knot is where you can explore your own stories, meet your own struggles, and develop your own mythic voice. Learn more about The Writer's Knot and register at marisagowdy.com. We'll begin in mid-January. If you register by December 23rd, you'll be invited to a special half-day retreat to reflect on the year that was and imagine the new story you'll live and tell in 2024. I hope to see you in The Writer's Knot. And meanwhile, let's continue our conversation with Elizabeth Cunningham. Oh, Elizabeth, thank you for bringing us into that moment in your life that just seems to have unfolded into so many other moments. I happen to be reading The Wild Mother right now, which I know is the novel that that original idea became. But of course, our conversation here today is really focused on the memoir, My Life as a Prayer. And I know it's a bit unique that I asked you to read a section that's really about your life as a writer and in your imaginative life to talk about a book that, at least by its title, is about prayer. But what I know about you is that the two are always so beautifully interwoven. 
Yes, I think that's true. I When my publisher asked me that question about the two strains of my life, I didn't quite understand what he meant because mm -hmm. they are um, they are one. Mm -hmm. And I had to say, look, I, I can't write a book about prayer without writing about my writing. How could I do that? I mean, there were other things that I chose to leave out using the lens of prayer. Like mm -hmm. I didn't really want, I didn't want to write about my love affairs. I didn't dare to write about my children. They probably disowned me if they could do that. I didn't <laughs> want to write about marriage. There are a lot of things I didn't write about, but so prayer is the lens, but then mm. there is no way that I could leave out the stories. Right. Because um, what, I mean, prayer is so many things. I mean, my tagline is um, a prayer is one who prays one praises a prayer. Um, but prayer takes many, many forms. And of course, storytelling is one of them because when you tell a story, you're going on a quest. Mm -hmm. When you tell a story, you begin with a question. When you tell a story, you are um, digging deep and healing something that needs healing. All of that is prayer. You are changing yourself. Maybe you're changing the world, but you don't get to know that. As you're, you are the original stone in, in the sacred lake and the ripples yes. will go yes. forth. You don't yes. you have no idea, but I think it is true that when you go to that level where story lives, it is your story and it's not just your story. Mm. So that's oh. why other people are touched by it if they are, because it's also their story. It's our story. That level where story lives, there's just something about that that wraps me up like a beautiful blanket. It's because you are a storyteller and a story knower and a story lover. And it's that trust that our stories connect. Because at the very end of this podcast, if anyone ever gets to the very last moment, I say something which seems a little bit bold that essentially says, please share this podcast with everyone in your life who's a lover of story. And by mm -hmm. the way, everyone is a lover of story. And if they've forgotten it, they essentially just need an extra dose of story. Yeah. <laughs> that is the truth. Yeah. Think of children saying, tell me a story. They still do that. I'm sure they still do that. They do. They do. Yeah. And you know what's interesting? I noticed too that they love around our dinner table, the tell me a story question is so often pitched at my husband, who's who's the engineer of the family. He's not the storyteller. <laughs> but what my kids want from him are like his stories of playing in the creek and the time that the grasshopper jumped into the belly of the fish and then they caught the fish later and found the grasshopper. And those are their favorite stories that they want. I guess because they're so based in connection, because I might accidentally take them to the story level and make it a little bit bigger. But what they want mm -hmm. at the dinner table is is a bit of their dad and that connection that comes with it. And I think that that's where story and prayer are also um, deeply related or the same, because mm -hmm. I, it is they're both about connection. What strikes me as I hear you read it this time is that in many ways, this is a prayer of gratitude for the sense that the kind of celebrating that day, that weekend, that moment when you mm. were sort of initiated into the realm of story. And you've written so eloquently about the power of a prayer that says help. And yeah. that you were essentially, help. you were asking for help. You received it with that. And then you were and then offering a prayer of gratitude all seems to yeah. be encapsulated in this. Yes. And I think that um, story was always so important to me that I knew probably 
very young that I wanted to be a storyteller, but I was stuck. And so the door was open for me by that phrase that I read. Think yes. about fairy tales. There's only five or six plots in the world because I didn't understand what plot was. I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to find one or make one. And mm -hmm. I've really not had a problem with that since then. Sometimes my plots run away with me and I don't know where they're going or why, but um, that's been very helpful. And I like to repeat that for other people who are, who are trying to find their voices as storytellers. Like, don't worry, you have a story to tell. In fact, all the stories have already been told, but they must be told again and again. And and to connect it with the book and also with prayer, I mean, in my particular tradition, I was a minister's daughter. Right. And I was just thinking when you said your kids really want to hear, they want to hear about their dad as mm -hmm. a person. Well, neither of my parents were storytellers, mm -hmm. oddly enough. Um, my mother had a few stories. They were quite harrowing. They were about her horrible brothers. Mm -hmm. But they, we, I, and of course, I was read stories by my mother. Yeah. And sometimes she told me stories about my stuffed animals, but we were not a storytelling family. Um, in fact, my fa the only person who told stories was my aunt, my father's sister, who had been adopted. And anytime she said anything and I repeated it, he said, Peggy's a liar. Peggy's a liar. Mm -hmm. But given that sort of lack of storytelling from my parents, it's interesting that I grew up hearing scripture, mm -hmm. which I I might offend some people as saying, well, that is storytelling. I heard sacred stories all the time. And I think that one of the things we've lost as a culture that's sometimes so literal-minded is that these were stories that were being told and retold and reinterpreted way back in ancient times. I mean, the Bible is full of stories. I mean, some of them are literal accounts or historic accounts, but they're always stories. And Jesus, what did he do? He told stories. That's how he taught. So although there was a dearth of storytelling on the part of my parents, mm -hmm. I grew up steeped in story. Mm. And it feels important to mention another piece of the book in relationship to your father and story was that he really denigrated the concept of being a novelist very overtly to you and really had raised you in this sense of you need to go be live a life of service and go be a social worker. And that would be the way to, I don't know, earn your keep on the planet was sort of the way that I was reading it. And maybe perhaps he he had his interpretation, but that um that tension was so alive for you. And I know I really picked up on myself. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because I think it's in many of us who are still wondering about there's so many things happening on the planet, always have been, especially in this moment of such great pain. Yes. What is it to be a storyteller, an artist, someone who's safe at home at their writing desk when we know that the worst atrocities we could imagine are unfolding at this moment? Yes. I think that that remains a question for me. And I think that it was <clears throat> my father and my grandfather lived by Matthew 25, which was, I was naked and you clothed me. I was hungry and you gave me to eat. I was sick and you visited me. 
My father also liked to stress that this just wasn't about individual good deeds. This was the nations shall be judged. So everything had to be at the level of social action and social justice. And he was an activist. He was active in the civil rights movement. He had a very dynamic church, which you couldn't just sit there in the pew. You had to be doing something. And I read... Um, an account of his father's church that someone else had written. I don't, one of my cousins found it. And he did exactly the same thing. you like, get up off your pew and get to work. Mm-hmm. And my father modeled his ministry exactly after his father's. Ironically, I think I say in the book, but I'm not sure. I think I did because someone just asked me about it. My father had wanted to be an English major. Yes. And he yes. wanted to go to graduate school. And his father wrote light verse and also um, dabbled in painting, which my father did too. But these things were not serious. Right. These things were not service. Mm -hmm. And I Mm -hmm. also tell the story in the book about um, that went in very deep. And the first time I met a writer, a real writer, a grown-up writer, Jay Williams, (laughs) who wrote children's books as well as adult novels and mysteries, I said, yeah, I'd really like to be a writer. But I can't be a writer because, you know, I really need to be a social worker first because I don't know anything. Mm. I told him when I was 15 years old. Mm. He looked at me, shrugged and said, Jane Austen, what did she know? Right. And And then he proceeded to tell me how she, you know, sat at the kitchen table in her family's house and wrote some of the greatest novels in the English language that we still read. So that, but that tension that you mentioned is still there. It's like, and as I get older, I still wonder, am I doing enough? Is there something else I'm supposed to be doing? And I think that one thing that writers do that is socially useful, novelists, storytellers, is we understand what story is, we understand point of view, and we understand how to hold two opposing views and how to have sympathy for two opposing views. And this Mm -hmm. is also something that it's at risk right now in Mm -hmm. our world and our culture. So perhaps we are more useful than we know. Yes. Well, as you say that, I feel tears welling up because what is a more useful skill than this moment to say, you know, as we're we're, here, we are in December of 2023. We know that war is raging in Gaza and we know that war is raging on social media. And we know that, you know, the, the level of disagreement feels like it's reaching a new and terrible fever pitch. And so that just really hits me in my heart. And it feels important that we call in sort of your other, you, you, we, we opened up today with this talk of a fairy god lover and a man who made a, a brief appearance in your life and helped to shape, shape the path you took. But then there's another being that anyone who knows you would also know well, and that's your best imaginary friend forever in Maeve, hmm. your Celtic Magdalene. And when I first discovered that book, I was working at Vassar College in the great cathedral that is that library. And there was Magdalene Rising on the new acquisitions shelf. And I, for whatever reason, I remember taking that book off the shelf. And this was before I had a chance to meet you. This was before I had really come back to any, well, 
it was before I come back into relationship with the Catholicism, with the Christianity that had raised me. I had spent a good 10 years as a witch and very much was claiming my connection to nature. It was through Maeve and through her travels to the Holy Lands and her relationship with Jesus in your book that brought me back into a new relationship with my entire ancestral culture in so many ways. So we talked before about that stone causing the ripples in the lake, but Mm -hmm. there's also that sense of saying, I truly believe that your book helped me understand the other side of, of faith, of, of what had shaped me, what I had rejected, what I might want to keep, and how it's possible to keep playing with these ideas, working with these ideas and co-creating with these ideas. Yeah, I think it's actually essential to keep telling those stories again. And I think I said before how if you go down to the level where your own wound is, Mm. or more than your own wound, because certainly it is more than my own wound, and you write a story from there, then it is going to speak to other people. And goddess knows I needed Maeve. Maeve, and for those who don't know her, is the Celtic Magdalene, but she's uh, never repents of anything. She is not a disciple, mm-hmm. and she uh, remains who she is, which is a kind of a, a wild Celt. She be- also becomes a priestess of Isis, Isis, but she doesn't convert, and she doesn't try to convert anyone else. Right. She tells stories. And so Maeve, um, you know, when I originally thought, when I was started missing Jesus myself after finding mm-hmm. the goddess, I thought, oh, but I I need an incarnate goddess, and I need, in my mind, I thought I was going to write a poem called A Witch's Love Song to Christ. And I guess mm-hmm. that's really what Maeve told, among yes. others. She went on to have her own adventures for two more books after he <laughs> did whatever he did. So mm-hmm. it's like people would say, oh, well, you can't. Well, I, mean, now, I mean, now that you're done with the Passion of Mary Magdalene and, and Jesus has, you know, died and resurrected and gone wherever he went. I mean, there's no more story. People actually said that to me. And it's like, excuse me? I beg to differ. Said, you know, Jesus was 33. Yeah. All right. Now I just turned 70. But I went through childbearing. I went through having, um, you know, extended family and a mother-in-law. And, uh, you know, I went through the deaths of my parents. And I mean, I went through a whole lot of things after the age of 23. And I said, mm-hmm. Maeve is not getting out of any of that. Mm-hmm. She's going to go the whole way with us. And she did. Yes. She went right into old age. And also in Red Robe Priestess, speaking of these times, I keep thinking of that book that I didn't expect to write. It was the fourth mm-hmm. book of what I thought was a trilogy. <laughs> Unfortunately, I planted a little seed about Boudicca in the first book. And then I said, oh, now I have to write about that. So I got to write about Maeve being torn. Um, in a culture that was torn apart, um, right. in a culture that was facing its end. Right. And um, and she tried to be a peacemaker. And of mm. course, she failed as far as she knew. Well, right. she did. And so it's sort of like she's come for me. She's like still my companion in this time mm-hmm. of so much tragedy and atrocity mm. that she was a witness to also. So she's our companion through seeing something that she loves being torn apart 
Mm. So she's our companion. And um, that's a big prayer. Yeah. And that and that's so much of what your book is, is a constant invitation to just really unfold what we might believe prayer could be and what we were taught it was when we were young. Um, and I know it really felt like a beautiful reminder to me that, right, when I sit down at my desk to write, whether it's something that goes out into the world or it's something that finds its own dead end, it still has that quality of saying, oh, this could be part of the spiritual practice. This could be part of the greater the greater work and not just, oh yeah, well, I'm a writer, so I have to get that done, but I better make sure I make room for, for meditation and prayer and time out in nature and all those things I sort of check, try to check off the boxes when I'm too much in my overachievy uh, 21st century colonized mind that says, I have to get all these things done in any given day to be, to be good or to do it right. But I feel like so much of your book is just that sense of like, it always is woven in mm-hmm. to life when we allow it to be and say, oh, right, I'm a prayer when I can remember just to look to something a bit beyond myself in this moment. And I think we are all, you know, that talking about the help, help prayer and then mm-hmm. being very surprised by what comes. We also, I believe, are we don't know it most of the time, but we can be answers to other people's prayers. So we're all woven up and gathered up in this mystery. Yes. And oh, yeah, and I still have these conversations. There's part of the book where when I'm awake between three and five a.m. in the morning, I'm having conversations with whatever we want to call it, the presence, sometimes Maeve, sometimes Jesus. I just heard the other day. Um, that I did not know how I was loved, and that love, the idea that you are loved by a, by whatever God is, and God is shorthand as far as I'm concerned. You know, we think, well, you know, God loves everybody. God loves everybody the same. And what mm-hmm. I heard the other day was, no, God loves everybody totally distinctly and passionately. And you need to understand how that works. But I was thinking of that when you said, you know, how how do you value what it is that you're doing when you think there's so many other things you ought to be doing? And possible as it is to believe sometimes we might be valued just exactly as we are. Mm. Possibly the things that we think are our flaws might be the things that are also our gifts and that are most needed. Yes. And we get to understand that most of the time, but maybe, maybe it's so. Mm. And this is such an inarticulate thought at this moment, but I want to try it. If that sense of whatever our shorthand, if God is our shorthand for that greater spirit and presence, that in certain traditions has been given to us as omnipotence, beyond imagining the power of this divine being. What if the power of the divine being is not necessarily about creating universes and, you know, mm-hmm. popping up a mountain here and there, but it's that power is in the ability to love each individual element of creation in the human and more than human world in a unique and passionate way. And that opens us up to each be in a passionate love affair. Mm-hmm with the all. And I, I, there's, again, that's probably deeply inarticulate, but it feels like an infant thought. That's also very, very, Sounds very articulate to me. <laughs> and I think the location of God is something that 
um, is a mystery mm -hmm. and is troubling. When I start my formal prayer, because, you know, I think everything is prayer, but when I begin, I say that I am praying to, with, and for the spirit that lives in and through all things. I feel sorry for whatever that spirit is sometimes. I mean, and I think it's very troubling these days. I mean, I, I watch clips of what's happening in Gaza, and over and over I hear people there saying, only God can help. Mm -hmm. And a grandmother saying to her granddaughter, only God can help us. And then I think, WTF um, is that being doing. So I think it's a troubling, it's a troubling thing to think, well, who are we? What are we? What is prayer? What are we praying to? What does prayer do? Mm -hmm. um, I opened one interview with, well, Somebody said, well, aren't we just praying for what we desire, what we want, and prayer doesn't work? And it's like, okay, I hear you. I mean, we're praying for peace. What is peace? How does it come? And I said, well, you bet it passes all understanding, Jesus, because where is it? And how do we find it? And how do we create it? And how do we live it? I don't know any answers. So I think part of what the book is for me is questions that lead me on quests. Mm -hmm. not to conclusions. Yes. And that peace is not necessarily passing the correct bill in Congress and having a certain election go a certain way. Oh. It instead is part of, you know, what is peace in an individual moment? I mean, mm -hmm. God is forbid. It's that sense of, of praying for a gentleness and feeling loved in that last moment for a baby in Gaza, because sometimes maybe that's what seems possible in this moment all the way up to saying, and yes, we've finally sorted out this seemingly impossible and intractable political yeah. quote-unquote problem that has ravaged so many lives. Yes, and is um, is ravaging so many lives is, and at so many levels. I know I was a family member who, um, I think we have a kind of a basic disagreement about some things at this time that surprised me. Mm. And I said, well, I said, I think my contribution to peace right now is not to pick fights with people. So yeah. it's like, sometimes maybe here we are at our desks, not really doing anything. And yet we have opportunities to create peace by listening to someone instead of judging them. Mm. And by allowing differences to exist without being um, creating a kind of psychological or emotional violence. Yes. Doesn't seem like much, but it's like, well, this is where we are right now. So what what can we do and what can we be? Yes. Mm. And this somehow reminds me of a line from The Passion of Mary Magdalene from your book about, and I don't have it exactly in front of me, so maybe you can help me with it. This idea of at Temple Magdalene, we take all who come to our gates because we practice what all religions once knew the stranger could be a god or an angel yeah that's close enough that's the conclusion of it that you have to look at everyone as if they were god or an angel coming to your door that's one of the big stories in um in the bible really right mm. it's like okay. don't judge and don't 
turn somewhere. I mean, not that there's there's other stories that totally contradict that, but that is a very strong theme. And um, many, you know, I think it's important to understand history and context a little bit, because what a lot of people may not realize is that the Good Samaritan that Jesus told a story about was someone that was reviled by people, by his, you know, his people at the time. Right. So he was saying, look, this person that you think is despicable mm-hmm. and lowly and other is the one who gave help. Yes. So I think he was telling that kind of story all the time. And we, God knows we have a terrible, God, goddess knows, we know we have a terrible problem with making the other um, bad and unacceptable mm-hmm. and projecting outward whatever we want to project. And Jesus is like, no. No, that's not your challenge. Your challenge is to see God in the other person. And that feels, yeah, like you said, more contemporary than is possible to imagine. Very. Yeah. In our conversation, I feel like there's a theme that keeps coming up that I feel like I want to mention because it's a really a theme of this whole network storytelling project. And it's a it's a word, it's a phrase in Irish that's fitchafuicha, which means Mm -hmm. interwoven. Mm. And I feel it as we're talking about that as the nature of of us as spirit beings, as human beings, as beings on this planet, talking about your interwoven creative storytelling life and your spirit life all weaving together. There's a way in which I recognize that's part of my own prayer. And it's um, sometimes it's more symbol than, again, easy to say it in any set paragraph but that sense of how we're constantly called to keep weaving and interweaving yeah and as you said that i an image came into my mind of that things can be torn yes and then they can be mended and rewoven and i think that is what the word tikkun means that's the concept of tikkun the jewish concept of tikkun mending the world yes yes so storytelling is one way to do that, as you were saying. Right. And I'm sure you've written many a character, many a woman who has sat down and been knitting or weaving and been with fabric as mm-hmm. part of, of her, her reweaving the world, her repairing the world, her weaving her own story. Yeah, that's what How to Spin Gold was about, among other things, I think. Yeah. yeah. I'm not very handy. But some of my characters are, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um, I often joke that my most of my characters have really great hair because I don't, but I get to live vicariously. So, yeah. <laughs> and I think that's one thing that reading and writing and praying does. Also, I mean, not to be flipped now, but to be serious, is it takes you into experiences and points of view that you don't have in your own you know, your own individual little life. So it expands you. Yeah. Yeah. All prayer and storytelling and story reading and story hearing. Yes. Yeah. And that's at once such an elementary concept in the sense that I think we offer it to elementary school children, but it's something that we tend to forget over time because we already think we have these big, full, busy lives, potentially. Do I have time for made-up story? And, mm. and that's just, again, that's that sense of, well, then you probably need even a little bit more to be yes. expanded, to hold yeah. more. Yes. Mm. Yeah. 
Oh, Elizabeth, I'm so grateful just to have been able to travel such diverse territory with you from this. I ne- I mean, we never know where we're going to leap off from when we read a passage from from a book and then and then explore. Is there anything you'd like to be sure that gets said before we close out today? A way out of no way, way will open. Mm. I think we began our session before we started record, recording with realizing that you need, you, you need to define something. So we both have our ways of asking for help. And what I think that does is shift perception. So I think that in order to find a way out of nowhere, we need to be willing to be still and to look Mm -hmm. and to listen in a new way. And that's true. Yes. Elizabeth, thank you so much for sitting with me today and weaving all of these different stories and prayers. It feels like what we we need most right now. I'm so grateful. Thank you, Marisa. I always love to talk to you anytime, anywhere. Thank you. Blessings on your work. And on yours. And I invite everyone, My Life as a Prayer, a multi-faith memoir, is in all of your favorite bookstores right now. And if it isn't, I invite you to ask them to put it on the shelf. It would make a beautiful gift this holiday season. Or just for you to sit in that interliminal space between one holiday and the next when the new year comes in. This is a very good cozy with a cup of tea on the couch book that I hope people will pick up. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Not Work Storytelling Podcast. Please subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. And do share this episode with other lovers of myth and story. By the way, everyone is a lover of myth and story, even if they've forgotten. Creating this show is a labor of love, and your support will help me continue to craft and share stories through season three and beyond please consider becoming a paid subscriber over on Substack, where I'm writing and creating additional audio magic with my newsletter and content hub, Myth is Medicine. You can find out more about my writing, my book, our online creative community, The Heroine's Knot, as well as how to work with me as a coach at marisagowdy.com. Music on the show is by the wonderful Beth Sweeney and Billy Hardy, a Celtic fiddle and multi-instrumental duo based on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The traditional reel we play at the start of the show is called The College Groves. Find out more about their music and shows at billionbath.com. Gratefully, I live, write, work, and record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Muncie Lenape tribe, whose name means original people.